Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Good day to you. This is the 50th episode of Mankind. I am Mark Watson. Here's Michael Chakraverty, and most of you already know what is to come. That was very kind of Radio 4 continuity answer there from you. Well, that's my ultimate job, yeah. <laughs> we should probably not talk too much in this intro because, well, you're about to find out how I am, and it's quite a long episode, so feel free to break it up, but hopefully, hopefully it's not shit, really. I think we don't need to say any more than that. It's time to listen to me talking to Michael with no one else in the way. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Watson. And our guest for this historic 50th episode of Mankind is a guy I, I've had to hastily Google um, to sort of throw together uh, some idea of who he is. My immediate impression is that he's wearing a um, quite cool little mix hoodie. <laughs> if anything, it's, I mean, you can't see this, but what is presented to me on the Zoom here is almost someone doing a caricature of Michael Chakravert. He's wearing a little mix hoodie. Uh, he has a, a sort of a gay rainbow in the background. He's got a little toy of some kind in his hand, which he's squeezing for uh, stress relief reasons. <laughs> it's none other than, in a mirror image of the also historic 25th episode, my partner in crime, Michael Chakraverty himself. Hi, Michael. Hello, Mark. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Well, actually, I mean, yeah, I've, I'm slightly... Uh, slightly bad. Yeah, I've got a sore throat and a cold and stuff, but one of my things is I never really um, accept minor illnesses. I just sort of plough through them, which is probably a masculinity thing. But luckily, I'm not the guest. You are. <laughs> and, uh, well, we've waited for this for a while. I feel quite nervous about it, you know. I don't know what it is. There's something quite nerve-wracking about being interviewed. Y you should feel nervous. You're in for a rough ride here. This is. Uh... <laughs> well, I, I nearly made you cry, so let's see how we go this time. <laughs> yeah, it was an emotional one. And, I mean, crying is sort of your thing as well. I'll be almost affronted if you don't weep at some point here. I won't have done my job properly. <laughs> well, I do cry at most things. That's why the podcast started, wasn't it? It was to do with men on the internet being cross that I was crying on television. And uh... It is one of the reasons that it was one of our starting points yeah yeah i mean actually we might before i ask you the traditional first question we might as well explore that one thing i think is interesting is we sometimes refer to your um celebrity baking career 
um, <laughs> normally in jest and often with reference to other more successful bakers like David Atherton. Sorry, I, was, I winced a little then. But I was thinking we also, it was more than a wince. <laughs> we also had John Waite. Your face went cold. <laughs> <laughs> I think I prefer to see John Waite as more successful rather than David. I'm going to put John Waite above David. And David listens to this, so he'll know. <laughs> That's why I chose David. I chose David for all these reasons. <laughs> I, I have a map of your trigger buttons and I'm going to be jabbing away at them like somebody playing Operation. <laughs> Actually, that's not... No, Operation, you're trying to avoid the... Anyway, but you see the point. Operation, you're removing, aren't you, rather than jabbing? You're removing. But I think it's telling that I have a mental image of you sort of lighting up in pain like that patient in Operation. And that's not what we want. We we, we always say to people it will be a lovely, relaxed chat, and it will be. Well, it wasn't for Tom last week, so we know the kind of trajectory you're on at the moment as an interviewer. That's right, and people seem to quite enjoy that, my uh, (laughs) hauling of Tom Mayhew over the coals. So maybe that is my thing. Going forward into the, the second half of our century of episodes, maybe we'll see it a harder edge watch and what better place for me to practice that uh, than with you <laughs> well actually no what i was going to ask um all comparisons between you and other bakers aside is it is quite a vulnerable thing to do to put yourself on a um national television show where even though it's baking we've said before the public are weirdly harsh sometimes about the decisions about people they don't like I suppose I was going to ask, sort of by way of a starter question, because the first time I ever became aware of you, of course, was the Bake Off, before we were ever friends, before we knew each other. And we've never really discussed this, oddly. Uh, What caused a person like you, with a history of depression and anxiety, and with the sort of temperament that you do, to think it was a good idea to uh, (laughs) enter and participate in something as high stakes as uh, the Great British Bake Off? Yeah, complete and utter foolishness. And I mean that partly as a joke, but also not, I think. I don't think I really realised what I was doing, mm. which sounds stupid, really. I mean, I think there's a kind of um, a unique thing with Bake Off where you watch it and you feel like you're the only person watching it, yeah. almost. You don't feel like everybody's watching it. It feels like something that you do at home with your family, and that's kind of just like a you thing. It came at a time when I was feeling more secure in myself than I ever had before I think I'd done some therapy and I had worked out quite a lot of stuff that had been going on in my head and and I was kind of thinking right I need to start I need to stop limiting myself I need to start saying yes to doing things and baking was like a very nice kind of think my mental health that I used to do and it used to kind of calm me down a bit and so I baked along with Bake Off during that that year of therapy and things like that and then a friend said oh you should apply and I said oh no I can't do that and as soon as I'd said that I was like oh well now I'm gonna have to at least try I get that. <laughs> um, of course I get that because I need, <laughs> I need to stop saying no and then yeah it snowballed a bit. yeah the trouble with a resolution like I'm going to start saying yes is when people suggest really mad stuff you have to you sort of have to do it yeah yeah and it kind of it, I genuinely genuinely never expected it to sort of go as far as it did really the application process took about six months and I was just kind of in a state of constant surprise that it was happening and then even when they were talking through the kind of pressures of it both while filming but after filming I was kind of in a state of yeah yeah sure sure like this <laughs> it's never it's never really gonna go that far and then it kind of it did <laughs> um, I like the idea by the way that you were baking along with it so it's almost like well, I might as well be in the bake-off because I'm, I'm doing the work <laughs> and I baked along with your friend of mine Bryony's season and did lots of their bakes and thought oh actually when you put your mind to it you can achieve it you can do it what I was gonna say actually was bizarrely I went from being in a very very secure place and a very kind of 
not a very, very secure place. I mean, secure by my standards. Um, <laughs> we'll come on to that. <laughs> but then during filming and immediately afterwards, I think I thought I was in a really good place, but I think I was actually perhaps in one of the worst places I've been in quite a long time. Why? Why? I think the intense pressure of it really mm. led me to shift my priorities in a really bad way. I kind of started putting a lot more emphasis on what other people thought of me and what I thought of me a lot more. Mm. And I, yeah, I mean, I had panic attacks during filming and my eating habits were really bad at the time. And I started to kind of neglect those friendships that had meant a lot to me in kind of creating who I was and sort of focusing a lot more on the new friendships, which were equally valuable, but um, my priorities weren't in line. And I think that was bad for my body and for my brain, but also just my friendships, really. Yeah, and some of this I did know about what you experienced during Maker, which is why I asked the question, I suppose. I wanted to know why mm. you put yourself in a situation where that could happen. But the answer makes complete sense. It sort of snuck up on you, the, yeah. the life-changing nature of something as big as that. And would I do it again? Probably not. I think it was a... That's interesting. You reckon? Yeah, genuinely. I think it was a product of, of the time that I was going through, if that makes sense. Like mm. it was like a, it was a time when I was trying to reach a bit further and try a bit harder and do new things. I'd just become a fitness instructor for the first time in my life, which, as we'll discuss, was a surprise to everybody, including myself. So I was going through a period of pushing myself. And I think now I'm in a lot more of a kind of protective phase of myself. Okay. And I think, yeah, I wouldn't do it again now. But it was a product of its time. Since you bring it up. A product of its time. I'm 29 years old. Come on, Michael. <laughs> I was, yeah. We dwell a lot on the age gap here. And I, I was almost going to pick you up on talking about three or four years ago, like the product of its time. But Not like I'm Florence Nightingale, like we need to calm down. <laughs> well, of course, we all did things in 2018, which we wouldn't do now. <laughs> Since you bring it up, how do you feel now about your relationship with how other people see you? and how you see yourself because obviously I've known you for well I've only known you I mean new listeners or newer listeners might not know this so I think it's worth setting what we've been doing into context the first time the two of us ever met was the first time we ever recorded yeah. a mankind yeah I was thinking about this when I thought about what I'd like to talk to you about I, I, I thought it would be worth just recapitulating the the strange circumstances which have led us to do 50 of these, which were that you um, came into a 24-hour show online, the first one, in fact. So this is so recently. This is May 2020. My thing was, there's that, oh, it's the guy from the Bake Off. Yeah. Some listeners might have been there, and they'll remember me and Tim Key yelling, do we have the bakers? Do we have the bakers? All, all you were to me then, like Brian, you was one of the bakers. One of the bakers. And then you started talking about how you'd like to do a, a podcast uh, with, with me and Coop, but this was all very vague still, and all of it over Zoom. And so even though we'd had two or three online chats, one of them in the frenetic setting of a sleep-deprived marathon comedy show, we didn't meet physically until it's less than two years ago as we sit here. And we were recording the first three episodes, so th the first guest was kind of introducing himself, it was Riyadh, and we were kind of also introducing ourselves to each other. It was a very strange scenario. Yeah, looking back, it's it's mad, really. Riyadh says, so who else have you had? And we, we had to say, oh, no one ever. <laughs> and then he said, so how do you two know each other? And we, we had to again say, we, we don't, really. <laughs> it must have seemed to Riyadh like it was some sort of sting like MTV used to do, where there was no podcast at all. Yeah, catfish. But that did mean that it was an odd way for us 
it meant that we formed a relationship stroke friendship partly through the medium of these conversations because you couldn't even really go out for a drink after those either because you weren't allowed to go out for a drink in those days. We so, did go out for one drink and it was pouring with rain. Do you remember? We sat in the rain for two hours, then called it a day. We got absolutely dicked on because you weren't allowed to go inside the building, yeah. <laughs> and after another recording, we just drank those little tiny wines you get from M&S oh, yes, on the so steps. We did. <laughs> yeah, it was, we met in a fairly bleak time to try and foster new friendships. And so I feel that I know simultaneously loads about you and also not that much, which is an interesting uh, starting mm. point for this conversation. But I was going to say... One of the amateur psychologist things, uh, impressions that I've formed of you is that when you're in a good place mentally, it tends to be to do with having freed yourself from worrying about what other people are saying about you. And when I've known you to be most unhappy or anxious or negative on the whole, it is because people are saying stuff about you on the internet or you think that they are or you are second guessing what people might be saying about you. And this is not really, well, it's not a criticism at all because I'm the same. But basically, yeah, how do you think you're doing at the moment with worrying or not worrying about other people's opinions because I'd say it is a key factor in your self-image yeah and I think it was it was a really big part of my therapy was talking about what other people think of me and I think that comes from I think a lot of that does come up from my growing up really and it comes from talking about I think we were inevitably going to talk about the gay thing right I think it'll come up yeah but it comes from that I genuinely think it comes from that because I spent a lot of my time when I was younger from the age of like six or seven policing my own behavior based on what I thought someone else might think so for example Mm. I completely negged on pop music because I thought well that's what gay people like so I'll listen to something completely different and that's that wasn't based on my what I wanted to do. It was based on what I thought other people would think of me. And so, what were you listening to, by the way, as an alternative to pop? <laughs> I went and I had a like a like an emo phase, like a rock emo phase, like blue. I think this has come up before, but I, I can never hear it enough because it's really hard to square with the <laughs> little mix obsessive that's in front of me. <laughs> and I, do you know what? I still love that music now. I think you can teach yourself to love something yes. and love that authentically. I still love it now. And you can love loads of different genres of music or art simultaneously. Of course, it's not either or but it's just fun to think of you actually being an emo yeah well yeah i mean my chemical romance are having a kind of a comeback at the moment Mm. and like that was my chemical romance scored my teens when i was younger but then i kind of bring that forward a bit towards therapy like a lot of my therapy is about what other people think of me how do i process how i work in, in in an environment of people where i don't know what they're thinking of me and the social media i think i find it really interesting because during bake off we all said oh we're not googling ourselves we're not looking and we were all looking of course we were all looking you were all typing in your name also of course yeah <laughs> into twitter it's inevitable that you would say that and it's inevitable that you would break the promise as well yeah yeah and eventually david was a really i find david a really brilliant friend because he's just so blunt and honest and he's like well of course you are and he kind of took away the shame of doing it which was lovely but it didn't take yeah. away the, the the hurt of reading what people say and like currently like today i feel all right to be honest but um if i think about it too much i, I find social media quite overwhelming i mean i have had to learn how to use twitter because if my tweets get seen by over a thousand people i tend to attract trolls and instagram I've kind of stepped off the gas with a little bit with Instagram just because it's, well, currently I'm not feeling very good in my body. And I know that if I post anything on there, it's kind of there forever. And even though people don't tend to be that mean on Instagram to me on my comments and stuff, it's a very kind of internal thing I have about it that I feel like I I only look good from a certain angle at the moment. And if it's not that angle, people are going to be making comments and that's 
difficult. So there's the body image side, but then interestingly, there's an influencer side as well, which I know we joke about a lot, but I post ads every so often on Instagram. It helps as a kind of a supplementary income for me. And I am careful about what I choose, but the, the anxiety about posting an ad is awful. Like it can make me feel really sick and anxious and worried that people think I'm selling out. And yeah, social media is a beast. There's a lot to unpick in there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I've seen you, again, quite early in our relationship. I saw you agonise over exactly how you're going to pitch a, a porridge advertisement, I think it was. So. It, was a, it was porridge. <laughs> and yeah. not that many people are going to get at you for that, you would think. But the internet is a very volatile place, of course. You've had a pretty odd relationship with it as well, because... Twitter-wise, you must have gone from almost no followers to tens of thousands very, very quickly. Well, no, I didn't have Twitter. Oh, even when I didn't it, have it. while Bake Off was on? No, so I got it on my friend's recommendation. We'd just finished filming, so it was before it broadcast, and I got Twitter then. And slowly, my introduction to Twitter was through the the crucible of transmission. Yeah, so, in, so it's, your relationship with it was even more violent than I would have imagined. Yeah, yeah it was. I mean, there was also like so much joy from it. Like there was so many funny memes and it was like the beginning of meme yeah. time and getting people with blue ticks following you was very exciting. Like that was amazing. Like me. Like, oh, genuinely, it was really exciting when you followed me. I was like, oh my God, this is Mark Watson off Radio 4. <laughs> so like, <laughs> so. And it is. <laughs> it still is. And it can be amazing. And that's why I think I'm still on it. But I've had to kind of mm. adjust how I use it. And I have a private Instagram now, which is just for me. So I can post a picture of a nice tree if I want to and not worry like, oh, people will think, think that I hate trees or I love trees. Or do, do I want to love trees too much or could you love trees too little? And that panics me. So a private one's nice. Yeah, every single post does have the potential to spiral in ways that you couldn't have imagined. Um, we might return to social media, but I, I, th I think it probably is time to ask. Well, before the traditional first question, there is, of course, there's the sort of pre-first question we ask, which often is a stealth way of getting people to reveal stuff, which is um, how do you introduce yourself? It's also a way of us not offending the guests by missing out something important from the resume. Yeah, in fact, you <laughs> normally say to them, the least offensive way to do it is if you introduce yourself. And it always serves as a reminder to me how nervous you are about offence and insult because even before we've said a word to the guest you're worried that what they're thinking yeah <laughs> but since most of our listeners probably everyone listening to this already knows about you I was thinking of asking the question in a slightly different way if you'll indulge me which is well say you're dating from an, uh, an app or something if you were um depends which app Mark depends which app I suppose it does yeah <laughs> grind is much less about introductions one of the less specifically fuck centered ones I suppose <laughs> if you can picture just for a second an app that allows you to socialize without immediately sort of going for cock <laughs> what would you say about who you are to somebody in the first kind of couple of hours of getting to know so how do you introduce yourself so it's basically the same question how do you introduce yourself yeah. by making it personal how actually do you introduce yourself I think it's an interesting question for someone like you because you are still widely known for one thing you're trying to st sort of distance yourself from that one thing but I'm also interested in what you like to show and what you like to conceal in the intimacy of a new relationship with someone? Well, my dating profiles say something like pro-procrastinator and brunch enthusiast. And I think that's about all they get on there. Yeah, pretty, pretty neutral, pretty safe. Pretty neutral, pretty safe, but also true. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I suppose it weeds out people who think, nah, fuck that. I'm either eating at 8am or I'm well, not. Well, exactly. But I think actually, gen if I, if my honest answer is that I tend to avoid introducing myself. I thought so. And I tend to ask tons of questions about them. If I had to kind of talk about who I am, I think I would, I always avoid talking about 
the online stuff because it just makes me bristle and it makes me uncomfortable. Like, I don't really mm. like thinking about that. Like, it makes me uncomfortable if the person that I'm, in, if I'm dating or meeting already follows me because I'm a bit like, oh God, they, they know this, this one version uh, of me. I tend to talk more about my private life, really. I tend to talk about, I, I've got two brothers <laughs> and a mum and a dad. <laughs> and I, I tend to talk about work because I have a private life and I'm quite protective of it. Yeah, I think basically I'm very guarded. You do at least have a proper job, I suppose. You've got loads of work stuff to talk about, which isn't this weird shadow life where you get paid to advertise fridges and, <laughs> and people send you free uh, appliances with rainbows on. I, I think it is genuinely... It's a really interesting question because I, I tend not to, and I tend to completely avoid introducing myself and talking about myself. And I tend to try yeah. and... I think what that is, if I was to psychologise a bit, it's a really good question. It's because I think I want to introduce myself from now and I want to kind of create new memories and create relationships from from who I am now, not who I've been before. Yeah. And I think that's probably why I, I'm kind of quite guarded about things because I don't really want to look backward and look at my younger years or look at my uni years or anything like that with a person. I tend to want to just go, let's talk about stuff that's happening currently. Let's not talk about who we've been and let's look forward that sounds quite wanky but i think it's true oh, i think we've said wankier things on this podcast and people sometimes like that <laughs> to um to steer towards that actual first official question then that we always have well it's quite nice not having to do the segues I, i'm always like listening and thinking how can i pull that into a question it's like i'm not having to do that yeah and you normally are i lean on you a lot for the segues here i'm, I'm solo segue guy <laughs> Yes. So let's talk about what your first brush with masculinity is. I suppose it's impossible to separate it from the idea of you realising that you were gay or actually by the sound of it, resisting the idea that you were gay. But we'll leave the question as it is. What did you first think masculinity was? And also, is there a specific moment, a first moment you remember thinking about it? I have been thinking about this more and more recently because I don't remember there being a specific moment. And everyone always says their dad or their brothers. And I think that's obviously true. But I don't actually remember kind of perceiving that much of a difference between my dad or my mum or me and my brothers, really, in that yeah. sense. Like my... I just side note, isn't it interesting how, how many times we get my dad? I, I don't think I expected it to come up quite as much as it does. No, and like obviously your dad is, is the first man sort of in your life, I yeah. suppose. But I think actually if I genuinely interrogate the thought, I don't think I remember kind of going, oh, masculinity that's my dad because your dad's a different mm. I think it's because there's a generational gap and so it's like well of course there's a difference between me and him because we aren't the same age I'm yeah. three years old and you're not like there's a, a gap there yeah. <laughs> you're an adult and I'm just sort of eating soft foods and um waddling around falling over <laughs> well exactly <laughs> but whereas my brothers and I I think perhaps more of a a difference but even then like there were enough differences between the three of us that there wasn't really, it wasn't like, oh, we're, we're all, I don't know. I didn't feel very much, very different to them. Like Daniel, my big brother, liked playing guitar. My brother liked playing drums and I liked playing the piano. And like there was three different things, but it didn't really affect our personalities as such. It was just yeah. who we yeah. were. Sorry, that was um really charmingly middle class way of Thank you. putting the differences. <laughs> well, growing up, of course, we all had our favourite instrument. <laughs> I wish I could still play. I used to like a trombone, which was fun. I bet you did. Is that the sort of thing you guys say? Yeah, we could. I, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I feel like a trombone is quite difficult, though, really. It's quite fiddly. Do you know what I mean? You don't know where to put your hands on the tube. Well, that, that, that we are getting to 
along those lines now. But um, <laughs> now we're getting there. Yeah, I, I believe that can that can happen. Yes, I did actually play the lesser known euphonium. That was my favourite. The euphonium. That's a new piece of yeah. trivia. And that's particularly upper middle class, I think, is a euphonium. You get the trombonists, then you get the euphonium. Yeah, to even know the word euphonium, you're at a particular income level, I reckon. <laughs> Any way of sort of drawing parallels between the euphonium and the penis, or should we just move on? I think that's quite hard. I mean, there's, the euphonium sits between a tuba and the horn, and I think the tuba and the horn are more ample for opportunity. The horn is almost too easy, isn't it? It doesn't give you anything. <laughs> Normally, your co-host, here I'm having to generate the expected amount of innuendo on my own as well as the segues so you know I'm doing my best (laughs) to answer the question generally I think my perception of masculinity was sort of like as a brotherhood or like a club Hmm. and it was never a club that I felt like I was in but it wasn't a club that I felt like I was out of either I was sort of just kind of existing on the periphery of this kind of yeah, this, this club. I remember that at school, there was all the boys in my year, the popular boys, weren't really football lads. They weren't chavs. They were just sort of, sort of like the skater crowd, the skater crew. And I was sort of on friendly terms with them, but I was separate from them, mm. markedly separate from them. And I think that was my kind of perception of masculinity was it was sort of this this club that for whatever reason I didn't quite fit into and I couldn't quite align with. And I spent a lot of my kind of teenage years trying to kind of float around different groups of people. And I ended up spending a lot of my time in the the music base at school, which was like the the music teachers, like mini staff room. Mm. And I would spend my lunch times in there with a couple of friends, but I didn't, I yearned to be part of the, of the group. Like I was desperate to be part of that group of lads and, and I was, Good friends, most of their girlfriends, but I couldn't quite get my way in, really. Of course you were. Yeah, yeah. I found it really, I I used to get quite upset about it. And then I was really excited once that I could, I was invited to one of their parties and I went along and the party was even worse, like, because I didn't know any of the jokes. I didn't really want to drink. I just kind of, I remember standing there wearing a shirt in the corner of the room, clutching a blue wicked. And they were all like in t-shirts and jeans and vans hanging out and doing stuff. And like, it was awful because I'd finally got this thing that I wanted. I wanted to be at their parties and it was worse (laughs) and it was horrible and awkward. I vividly remember that feeling of almost the exact same thing from a a different starting point. But um, 15 years before, I remember the same despair of thinking, Oh, hang on, I'm at a party now. Mm. What what now? Because, of course, yeah, the hierarchies, the in-jokes, all the stuff you felt excluded from in a passive way, uh, you're now being ex- you're excluded excluded from in real time. Yeah. yeah. And, like, we've joked before about when I used to play a goalpost at, uh, during football, like, all the boys would be playing football and I, there'd be a jumper on one side and me on the other side because I was so bad at football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that felt like inclusion to me. Like, I was like, wow, I'm part of this group of people. And like, that was exciting. Yeah, I have a pantomime role in this. Whereas what's tough at parties when you're that age is they just, they literally are just going on without you. It's it's sort of like being a ghost. Yeah. Also, I I can really relate to a Blue Wicked as like (laughs) the absolute signature drink of someone that's thinking, I wish I wasn't even here, but I should be drinking. So I suppose it's this. (laughs) No disrespect to WKD, of course, which... uh, my friend Alex Horn advertised very early in our careers. <laughs> so you had this kind of, we talk quite a bit, don't we, about a lot of people say about their first experiences of masculinity, sort of what you've said, which is some people say they felt actively excluded from it. But it's more common to hear from guests that they just felt weirdly not part of it without being able to say what they wanted to be part of. If you had to describe 
the most common queer experience that we've heard on this podcast, I would, if you had to summarise, I'd say it's that. It's not so much rebelling against something or being actively lonely in the face of it. It's more just looking at something and thinking, well, whatever, whatever this is, it isn't me. So then what am I? Yeah, and I think it is inextricably bound from being queer. And I think you can't really get away from that because the time I was growing up was, I was born in 93. So I was around the kind of early 2000s, section 28 in the UK was just on its way out. Yeah. So gay people weren't being talked about. And if they were, it was after the watershed at nine o'clock. Well, they were being talked about in the playground in a very derogatory way, but they weren't being talked about in kind of wider context. So you do grow up kind of going, well, I do feel different, but I don't know why, really. You can't quite work out what to identify with. And then as soon as you start realising that you are queer and that is something that makes you different, it's not something that you want to embrace because you're so desperate to fit in. And like the qualities of masculinity that I saw were people who fitted in, who had friends, who were popular, who people liked. And I don't think I particularly felt liked, really, when I was younger. I think I had friends, but no one really close. Like, I remember my, as far as my 16th birthday, really, I couldn't name, really, any close friends. Mm. So I remember having a barbecue for my birthday. Mum said, oh, who do you want to come over? And I was like, oh, well, like, I suppose there's a couple of people that I'm friendly with that could come over. Yeah. Vividly remember having this barbecue with people and there was one friend, Jane, who, I, who I'm really close with now still, one of the few kind of remaining friends when I was younger. But I remember even at my 16th, looking around the room, kind of going, oh, wow, like they're all having conversations about things that I don't really know about, really. Yeah. But I don't remember feeling lonely, but I think I was. And where were you with being gay at, at that point, like 16, 17? I knew... I definitely knew, but it, I just wasn't talking about it at all. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I thought I would ever talk about. I think I was at a phase around when I was 16, even younger, um, where I would kind of, I would spend my time trying to work out how I could not be or how I could have a, a life where people wouldn't know. So I would think about my best friends and I'd think, oh, could I, could I date this person? And could I find a way for us to be together, even though I know that I'll never be attracted to them in that way? Like, is a friendship going to be enough? Yeah, you visualised a whole life where you'd just turn away from being gay and accept whatever you could have in that vacuum. Yeah, and I think really, if I'm honest, that's quite a selfish thing because you don't think about the other person in that scenario, do you? Who's acting as your kind of beard. No, but to be fair, you weren't actually dating them. You were only imagining. No, no. I remember asking my friend out and through another person, obviously, because you don't do that. You don't do that directly when you're 13. You ask your friend to ask their friend to ask them. No, no, I I asked my first girlfriend out through sort of consortium of her girl friends I had to go through and they they approved it. But then I got dumped in the same manner about six months. (laughs) (laughs) There's a girl called Teresa when I was at primary school. I must have been like, what, eight. And we were dating for a whole lunchtime. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable and awkward and horrible about it. Because I was like, I don't want to. You knew Teresa wasn't the one. No, I knew Teresa wasn't <laughs> the one. And it turns out she wasn't. And I think Teresa knew that too. When I was at secondary school, I remember asking this person out. And they very gently turned me down in a very lo- loving way. And when I look back, I think it was because they were like you are not interested in me. <laughs> you don't want this if you're honest with yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that was a really, that was the, one of the few moments when I look back when someone kind of sort of acknowledged that I was queer without it being derogatory. I remember my um, my first year at uni, 
I went to uni in Edinburgh and a couple of my friends from school came to uni with me. And one of them, we'll call him Scott because it's easier to have a name. Scott was part of that group that I was desperate to be friendly with. And he was part of that gang that I, that I saw was really popular. And we, we met him on the night out, me and my housemates. And I heard him, I wasn't in the conversation, but I heard him speaking to one of my housemates and saying, they said something nice about me. And Scott said, oh, but he's gay though, isn't he? And Ooh. I bristled and like, I remember thinking, oh God. And then my housemates defended me saying, oh no, he's not, no, no, he's not. He's got with all these girls, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh God, like it feels even worse that they're defending. Being defended. Yeah, of course. When they're wrong <laughs> and he's right, but he's saying it in a bad way and they're saying it in a nice way. And I Yeah, got... what you needed there was someone to wade in and say, he is gay and that's also fine. Yes, exactly. But I wasn't there yet. There was this sense of not wanting to prove anybody right, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, this is probably a good place to drop this in. I asked online for people to put questions, well, what question they would like to ask you, regular listeners. Did you? Oh, I didn't see this. Where was no, that? No, I did it secretly, of course. <laughs> Because <laughs> I thought it'd be nice now and again. To, and somebody asked, it's a good question, I think. And it's sort of pertinent here. It's from someone called Esan. If you could go back to yourself as a new boy trying to find your own... Oh, sorry, young, not a new boy. Uh, <laughs> if you could go back to yourself as a young boy trying to find your own masculinity, what one piece of advice would you give? If the, this Michael was able to talk to... I don't know. We can define young boy how we like. Maybe it's interesting to talk about it as in... Well... Even in that situation where you heard people saying, ah, oh, he's gay. No, he's not. He's fine. If you could walk into that room now and take that Michael aside, what would you say? Uh, I think I would probably say these people aren't your people, really. Mm. I kind of think, does it matter whether these people think you are or whether you aren't? Because I think it's, I think it's stupid to say, well, not stupid, but I think it's not helpful to say, it doesn't matter whether you're gay or not, because it does matter. Yeah. It just does. It, it matters to me and it matters to those that I love. So that that's a stupid thing to say for me. But I think what is important is to know that who are your people and who aren't. And yeah. I think when you come out, a big part of coming out is kind of working out who you're going to be with and who you're not going to be with. And I think that's where I would, that's what I would say to that person in that situation is does it matter what these people think of you? Are these your people? Are, do these people's opinions actually matter to you? And will they in five years? That I also, though, in terms of masculinity, would say you are masculine. Yes, there is just more than one way of doing that. Yeah, and I think that's the simplest thing that some, sometimes men in particular need to hear is that whatever you're doing, that is masculine. Masculine isn't something that you're having to fit into. It's something that's sort of within you. Yeah, which I think has been a... A finding from our fifty, our first mm. fifty episodes, which I found really satisfying. Yeah, would I have understood at the time? No. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know what a podcast was at the time. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's the thing. I have quite often been asked uh, versions of this question: What would you say to this young version of you, or that young version of you? And it is, it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Because almost always, I come to the same conclusion, which is whatever advice I would be giving them wouldn't make sense until I became this age anyway sort of thing you know it, yeah which I suppose it doesn't matter because we can't time travel but even if you could I don't think I'm pretty sure if I went back to my 17 year old self now I'd be able to tell them loads of useful stuff but that me would be like yeah but you're just saying that or I'm sure that's fine but 
you've got like a weird jumper on. But what about now? Yeah. I've still got to go home and think about what's happened. And Yeah, all yeah. you ever have is the now, really. So this idea of a kind of future self visiting and sorting you out is obviously kind of... I mean, obviously it's an illusion because it's just a fun game. But even on a, another philosophical plane, it doesn't really make sense. The whole thing with life is... That thing about life can only be understood backwards but has to be lived forwards is... I think about that nearly every day and it's true. I think that's true, but then I also think there's an element of... If I'm answering this question now and there is a 13-year-old in a similar position now... Yes, which is a more useful thing to talk about. Exactly. So I think the question kind of rests on the assumption that you can only really give advice to yourself Mm. properly because you know... But actually, it's probably being heard by somebody else. Yeah. And that's the and that's where I think a lot about the importance of people with platforms using them properly and using them to assert things that people need to hear. And especially during all these horrible times for trans people, I think it's important that people hear people standing up for them and sticking up for them because young people will see that and hear that, not necessarily in an environment where they feel they can be themselves, you know? Yes. Yeah. And that's another thing that I'm kind of proud of when I look back on the, the history of mankind so far the responses mm. we have from people who it does feel as if there are people who chance upon this podcast and hear essentially old versions of us but they are living it now and uh, there are things here that they might yeah you know. I think us at the time like what would you say to to you about what mankind would be as in when we started mankind or yeah what like what would you say like this podcast is, is going to give you or this podcast is going to do something for you what would you say well I think it would do. Yeah, I've been really happily surprised by the impact it's had on me and also the people that like it. I think I'd never bothered having a, a podcast, as you know, before this, because although it's something of a running joke, how many podcasts are just like straight white guys talking back and forth. And that's a slightly unfair generalisation because there are some great ones in that category. But all the same, I didn't feel as if there was any need for me. There was no pressing need for me to add to the massive stockpile of podcasts that were already out there. That, you know, every time someone had suggested to me doing a podcast, my response was, why? I had very, I had football-related ideas. I had ideas, but I couldn't see any need for me, basically, to do it. And when you and I were talking about this and Coop for the first time, I I could imagine it being something which uh, almost subverted or played with at least that idea of the two men Mm. endlessly talking. I, I remember when we first advertised it, a couple of people snarking, yeah. Uh, very, very minor stuff. But people saying, oh, men talking about men, that's exactly what we need. And my whole thing was like, no, you don't understand. We do need it. We just don't need it in the form that 95% of it currently is. Mm. What we need is men actually interrogating this thing, and especially two men with really different standpoints. And has it made you interrogate things? Yeah, for sure. That's the thing. I, I thought that, I don't know, artistically, if that's the word, or commercially, or whatever, that there was a good reason to do it. Like, well, commercially is not the point, really. We haven't become millionaires from it. But, I mean, I felt <laughs> like there was... Barely a... breaking even, if we're honest there. <laughs> yeah, yet. Um, I definitely felt that there was a good and valid reason for it to exist in a way that I couldn't have defended. I, I mean, I haven't always done things for that reason, but I like to feel as if there is. But, yeah, what has surprised me is that almost from the get-go, from that first one with Riyadh, I've learned something in almost every episode... With Riyadh, it was as basic as, oh, a lot of people weaponise football and you've loved... I remember having that revelation during the conversation with all the, the drag artists we've spoken to or there are whole provinces of queerness that I've barely had any experience of, which Mankind has brought me into contact with. And But also, yeah, it's made me think about... The same as you, really. It's made me think about the idea that masculinity is a game we all play in different ways. And, I mean, this episode is not about me, but definitely my history with it is subscribing quite heavily to some aspects of being a straight man and being totally alienated by others and I've come to feel 
much more comfortable about that as well, I think. And also on a practical level, I'm much more engaged with all this stuff now. I'm actively looking for stuff about queer people, trans people, working out how I can support it, reading about it. I follow loads of people on Twitter I never would have done before Mankind. So, including some porn stars, which was <laughs> an exciting experience for you. Including some, yeah. I see more dicks these days than before Mankind. I suppose that's, that's the short answer. So yeah, I think I'd probably... We're only going back to 2020. I think I'd say to 2020, Mark, do do this because this is going to affect your opinions and views and relationship with a thing that you don't even know you have a relationship with. Mm. And also, you'll meet a really great guy, Michael. I think that's really lovely. Like, I, I agree. I think I've learned a lot from it and I've learned a lot from you but also our guests and I think our listeners like the things people write in have been amazing but it's, it's broadened my mind completely and I think we'll come on to it later but I think it's actually kind of made me question a bit more who I well who the hell I think I am <laughs> really <laughs> yeah which is something that I think you're still working out without wanting to be patronizing mm-hmm. I mean we always all still are but yeah, in fact, I know. I was going to ask you. I'm going to. I'm, I've got a good idea for a question, but I'm going to hold oh, it uh, because you tease. I think we should. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, keep listening. Is that how you do it? Here's a good time for a break. Actually, should we have a break? Because Mark's got a good question coming. Oh yeah, you mean a break in terms of the actual that bit where it goes doo? Yeah, yeah. I think it goes like hoo. Actually, more. It's more of a. It stops going doo. It's like a hoo. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, let's just quickly round off the topic of your actual your coming out because we haven't really Oh yes. When you came out, was it a relief in terms of how you saw your own sexuality like did it make you feel differently about it and about yourself once you'd owned it in that way I've been thinking about this recently actually I came out in 20 oh I can't remember what year it was but I was 19 I was going through a really bad patch of mental health actually at the time I think I was really struggling with it like really 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 struggling with it I was kind of living a bit of a double life where I was kind of seeing men very secretly through grinder and things like that but 
but not let anyone else see, even though most people knew. And I got, I worked myself up into a really kind of awful state, really, where I couldn't really see a way out for it, particularly. Yeah, horrible. And it had all come to a, yeah, it had all come to a head, like imagining these, this life where I wasn't able to kind of fulfill who I was and I couldn't see a way for me to actually do it or I couldn't see no that's not true I could see ways of me to do it the concept of coming out was in I knew of it but I couldn't see myself doing it yeah. I think that's a different thing of course it is and it culminated in a in like a midnight call to the Samaritans really because I was sort of on the on the edge there of not wanting to do it anymore mm. and I came out to that lady on the phone and there was like a, a silence <laughs> when I came out. I shouldn't say anything. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, this is awful. This is, this is, this is the worst thing that could happen. And she just went, okay. And they're like, in a way that kind of made me want to keep talking. You, if you know what I mean? Like it was providing space. I do know what you mean. I've only called this marriage once myself in life and it was very similar. A lot of um, frightening pauses, which are actually opportunities for you to talk in a way you just haven't before. Yeah. The jumping off points. And she slowly kind of, I suppose physically and metaphorically walked me back from the edge and she told me that was it was okay and what did I want to do now uh, now that I'd told her and I didn't know and she kind of gently suggested I could tell somebody else that I knew mm. and so I knew there was a friend that I could tell Mel and we kind of put together a, a plan together really so I, I had to text Mel and say I've got something to tell you tomorrow so that when tomorrow came, I did it. Yeah. And I, I think the lady on the Samaritan's call knew that Mel probably knew as well. <laughs> so it wasn't a huge surprise. But I remember... She was holding herself back from saying, Mel already knows. Mate. <laughs> yeah. And I told Mel and I initially, actually, like Owen Jones did um, when we spoke to him, I initially came out as bi, which I now know is very problematic and it uh, doesn't necessarily help by people because people see it as a phase when in fact it wasn't it was a sort of soft launch way of being gay it was a soft launch but not not a healthy one and mm. yeah that was it really and um it kind of snowballed from there i told people quite quickly told my parents told my brothers and it kind of just kind of expanded out from there and it was it was good but then i think actually coming out to answer your question didn't free me i think it made it worse right in a way so I didn't feel suicidal anymore. So that was great. That's a big tick. Some would say a win. Yeah. And probably worth saying at this point, the Samaritans do amazing work. And that is an yeah. astonishing free resource that we just have because of the public spiritedness and emotional generosity of complete strangers. Yeah. So if you ever get the chance to support the Samaritans, please do do that because it's amazing how many people... Have... Yeah, 116123. Yeah, it's, it's worth... We'll put that up as well on the... Yeah. Um, you almost take it for granted, but if yeah. someone described the Samaritans to you as a service and you'd never heard about it before, you'd be like, God, that's amazing. Like it's, it's incredible. And, I, and if I'm completely blunt about it, I think if the Samaritans didn't exist, they might not be having this conversation today. And the same is true of a lot of conversations as we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're incredible. So yeah, I don't think yeah. I, I was better in terms of kind of seeing a future, but I think I was almost more miserable because I was trying to prove to everybody that I wasn't changing. Yeah. That there wasn't going to be a difference. So I came out and I was like, I'm still me. I'm still this person that I've been showing you the whole time. And so I kind of still continued to resist pop music and I resisted liking musicals and I resisted all these things that I thought would make me seem 
in quotes, too gay, I suppose. He's become that gay guy sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So there was this kind of internalized homophobia, really, that I still wrestle with. And I think many people wrestle with still. But my big thing when I came out was, oh, I'm not going to be that gay. And so I was out, but I was still <laughs> sort of in the closet. Hi, I'm a bit gay. That's what I had to tell you. But like, not seriously gay. <laughs> Hi, I'm a little, I'm a bit gay, but not too much. Yeah, a bit like if you're telling someone you've got an illness, but it's like, we've caught it quite early. So, you know. Yes, indeed. I was more in than out, I think. Interesting. And I was certainly not shaking at all about. No, it doesn't sound like you were doing too much shaking of it all about. Yeah, <laughs> I do think that's, because we often, we don't often talk to people about the actual process of their coming out on these episodes, but for loads yeah. of reasons. It's often not something people necessarily want to revisit and there are other more interesting things to talk about. But with you, it is, I felt like it was worth chatting about. And I came out to lots of people in different ways. So like yeah. I told some people in person, some people in texts. I told my dad and my brother in a car because I wasn't facing them. I had a conversation with my mum at the kitchen table. But um, other people I was more nervous about. I mean, I fell into a relationship quite quickly after I came out. And so it became quite simple just dropping in a pronoun or saying, oh, my boyfriend so-and-so and and that was easier so there's lots of different ways of doing it i suppose yeah i suppose talking about an actual relationship that's going on is easier than just yeah referring to yourself in the abstract as gay even if it's horribly unhealthy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's horribly unhealthy but it's handy to have that name to drop (laughs) we hate each other but it sure is handy (laughs) it is um it annoys me when I listen back to Mankind how often I say, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. It's a real kind of almost a tick, but it is because I am constantly... Uh, You're interested. You're just an interested guy. My curiosity is always being stimulated. It's an interesting podcast. What can I say? <laughs> bite me. Actually, I won't say bite me. That's younger people. But yeah, what I do think is interesting is I think from a straight person's point of view, there is this fairly attractive or easy to swallow narrative of then he came out and accepted himself and everyone accepted it and he was fine. It's, I find it sort of an eye-opener to think of you in some ways having a harder time mentally once it was a known quantity. Mm, yeah, and coming back to what we've spoken about before is what people think of you. I think it's it continues well, yeah. to be a plague on you. Yeah, and you said there that you, you still wrestle with internalised misogyny. What do you mean? Is there still a part of you that would rather not associate yourself with aspects of gayness? or uh, Not anymore, and I think that's... That's through pushing myself not to, really. I think genuinely, until I found a group of queer friends mm. who were open to kind of pushing me and challenging me and teasing me for these kind of assumptions I was making, I was in that way for a long time, really. Yeah. Like, for example, I haven't felt comfortable talking about having sex until the last two or three years of my life because it felt like that was something that was a shameful, sordid thing that no one should talk about. But you are you are doing it, right? I, not right now. Oh, I've seen texts from you. But yeah. <laughs> oh no. It doesn't look like you are, although I can only see we can only see the top half of each other. <laughs> but yeah, no, like it was genuinely revolutionary was talking with a group of queer people about a funny sexual encounter I'd had mm. and them laughing but not kind of going, oh, or not being repulsed but just laughing along and that feeling normal. And that was something that was happening in the playground with my friends when they were 16, 17, they were laughing about different sexual exploits. And it's taken me till I was 27 or 28 to have those. So genuinely what's changed that whole internalized homophobia, that that whole feeling has been queer people and finding a queer family. And I know that sounds really strange. And we always hear it online about people saying, oh, you choose your queer family, but you do. And they genuinely help in ways that lots of other people can't, I think. Of course, it comes back to your people again, knowing who your Mm. people are is one of the key moments in a person's life. Exactly, right. And I finally found my people. It just took me 
27 years rather than 10. <laughs> yeah, it can also take 50 years, though, I suppose. It, it can take as long as it takes. Yeah, it can take however many years it, it needs, but it does make all, make all the difference when you find people who just kind of go, okay, here's who you are. And they took me to, like, they pushed me to go to my first Pride and, like... Well, actually, here's a fun story. I had never been to a Pride before until after Bake Off. Yeah. And I was still in that time of trying new things. And I mean, Pride wasn't an emotion that you normally felt in relation to your sexuality for a start. <laughs> no, genuinely not. And I was actually resistant to going to Pride because I didn't think... It was actually quite good we're talking about this now. It's Pride Month. Yes, yeah, because it's timely, yeah. I thought the whole concept of Pride was backwards and I thought that surely if we're fighting to be included we shouldn't be marking ourselves out as being different that doesn't make any sense we should just sort of slide into the background and get on with it yeah, yeah. we should back off and just be quiet and be normal mm. and so you'd have preferred an event called reluctant acceptance or something I'd have, I'd have preferred no event at all <laughs> everyone sitting quiet in the living rooms minding their own business <laughs> yeah and it wasn't until I went that I kind of kind of finally understood it and it was about that sense of community that sense of queer families mm. and queer people coming together and also about reflecting on where we've come and while yes I had my challenges they're nowhere near as much as they were 10 50 100 years ago and also kind of looking forward to going right we've got more to do so let's celebrate now let's celebrate where we've come to and if you want to dress up as a dog you do that that's great you do you let's all just be happy today but let's galvanize and use this as a chance to kind of push forward. And I met drag queens there for the first time and I became really good friends with one called Blue Hydrangea, um, who she, I don't think she realizes this, but she changed quite a lot of how I saw myself. And the only way to hang out with her really was to go to gay bars that I'd never been to before. So she and her partner Johnson would look after me and make sure I was comfortable and take me for walks if I got overwhelmed. But finding that family that kind of, who will meet you where you are and take you where you want to be that's amazing. That's really lovely. And again, it's, I think it's worth saying because my whole acquaintance with you, well, no, friendship with you and the listener's friendship with you has been, <laughs> well, you come across like somebody very comfortable with making jokes about your sexuality. You, if I may repeat your phrase back to you, you reflect quite a lot on where you have come. And um, it's... <laughs> More so than ever now, yes. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Given that there's a potentially wider <laughs> range of those locations because of your app usage. And in fact, you said to me in Newcastle, one of the first times we hung out, I asked you how, I think it was something like, how does someone relatively vulnerable in the way that both of us are? Because dating is something I've not, you know, engaged with for kind of all my life, really. I mm. I've not lived that life. So I think I asked you how mentally you reconcile yourself to seeing someone, sleeping with them, and maybe never even having any contact again. Because I just, And you basically said, because you hadn't been living the gay life for so much of your life, you were now sort of living it really hard, as it were. Yeah, no it's like you live your teens. Yeah, it's like you're having a delayed teens. Exactly, it's sort of like that. But then I think there's also an element of... Something I've learned through the podcast, actually, and, and and also having kind of new friendships with people that I'd never would have spoken to before. But why? Why have we decided that you need to be monogamous? Or why have we decided that you need to strike up a relationship in order with, with someone in order to have sex with them? And I'm not saying either of those are bad things, mm. but we sort of automatically assume that that's what you want. Whereas actually, if people, more people, I think, took the time to interrogate what they actually want, I think they might find they want more than what they have currently. And I'm not saying it's what I want forever. Like, of course I want um, a boyfriend and that's who I am. And I know I want one for healthy reasons, but that doesn't mean anything else is necessarily wrong. And I think speaking to, was it Fred about polyamory? Yeah, I think it was Fred. It was Fred language, yeah. That was really interesting to me. And it's not something that appeals to me. 
but sure, why not? If it works for you, then great. And I think I think what's quite nice about being queer, but I think hopefully something that everybody could learn from is just interrogating the reasons why they're doing what they're doing, I suppose, and checking it works. Yeah, asking yourself what would make you fully yourself. And also sex is fun, why not? It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Turns out, actually, it's actually quite good fun. <laughs> if you've just tuned in. I'm happy to be on record with that one, actually. Good, well, perhaps your future boyfriend is listening to this and is now putting a tick next to it, likes a set. <laughs> I assume gays all walk around with the checklist like that. You seem like quite well-organised people. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying at the beginning in terms of introductions, perhaps I just send this podcast as like a kind of, here's who I am, and then that can be the intro before dating. And actually, this brings us on to another one of our traditional questions, which again, I've given a, um, a novelty slant. Rather than ask you specifically who you looked up to either then or now because of this landmark episode and we've touched on a couple of them actually including fred but are there people among the 49 we've spoken to who you look up to or aspects of them are things you'd like to emulate but i think quite a lot about what i've learned from specific guests who i mean i can genuinely say we've admired and liked well nearly all of them but um yeah (laughs) Who or what do you look up to among some of the people that we've actually met through this? I mean, there's been moments where I've definitely been starstruck. <laughs> we've been listening, notably Tim Minchin, when I just sat there silently listening and gazing. You do a lot of gazing sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I think I've learned the most from people whose experiences have been different from mine. Mm. So when we have gay men or queer men on, I, I enjoy listening to their experiences because they kind of match, I suppose. And I can kind of relate to them in that sense. That's that sense of relating to people is really nice. But I think I've learned more from those people who aren't. So yeah. So trans men or trans women or NB people, that's been an amazing thing. I think genuinely, and if I was to answer the question in its traditional format in terms of who are your role models now, I think it matches. I think one of the people that I really look up to and I'm really grateful to have kind of stuck up a friendship with post-podcast is Travis Alabanza. One of our earlier guests. Yeah, one of our earlier guests. They are an incredible person and just the way they process the world, the way they think about the world, the way they reflect on their position and who they are. That's genuinely changed my perspective on how I see things and how I see people. And I was reading a proof of their book. They were really generous to send it over. It comes out in August, I think. It's definitely worth reading. It's called None of the Above. But reading that book, I found completely revolutionary. Like it's, it's, it's changed my perspective on who I am and how I identify with my gender, actually. And I'm not mm. necessarily coming out as anything at the moment, but it's... That would be great for the podcast, but like, it's up to you, it's up to you. <laughs> it's basically, I think what, what their book does is it, it's captured a moment in their life where they are, I, su- I suppose, in the process of transition, but in a much more loose sense, where they're sort of accepting who they are as somebody who is in flux and as somebody who will change. And I think... Mm hearing somebody embrace that has been really fascinating to me. And I think the more we talk about masculinity and the more I've learned about masculinity and I see all those boxes that people try to fit in and they don't fit or they do fit or all of that has made me kind of feel like, well, maybe I don't want to fit in those boxes. Hmm. And like, while masculinity may have formed and shaped me to become who I am now and how I identify do I still identify with those boxes, if that makes sense? It does. It's a bit like what Andrew O'Neill said about having a jacket that doesn't necessarily feel right. It's like you're wearing somebody else's jacket. Yeah. I feel like one sleeve fits, but the other one's a bit too short. And you'd say that's still where you are now. The jacket isn't, it isn't a perfect cut. It's where I am now. And I think it's probably to do with the podcast where I've, where I've heard different experiences and different 
it's not even just hearing just different experiences, I don't think. I think it's also about hearing possibilities. I've heard different possibilities of existing. People like Andrew who <laughs> who are an NB metalhead or there's so many different ways of existing. And I think I've kind of gone, right, well, I have a bit more of a, a toolbox to play with, as it were. And I think, yeah, I don't think I'll necessarily make two huge changes about myself. And I still think it's quite challenging to think about because I think, well, well, why don't I wear a skirt then? And I, say, I don't want, I don't want to do that. And do I not want to do that because I don't want to do it? Or do I not want to do it because somebody else doesn't want me to do it? But you're at least asking the question there. Yeah, yeah. And Jamie Windus was talking about this as well, second episode or third episode. But all those things are beginning to kind of come together in my mind a bit. And I think, I don't actually think I identify particularly as a man anymore. I think I just kind of use that as shorthand. Mm. So... Yeah, I don't quite know what I'm saying, but I think that that in itself is what I've learned from Travis. I think you're saying a lot, to be honest. It's really, it's fascinating. <laughs> I think what I've learned from Travis is you don't need to know. And like, it's okay for you to be where you are now. And like, if in 10 years I identify as somebody completely different, that's cool. That's fine. And I've kind of slowly begun to kind of remove myself from labels a little bit. And I've learned that from them is is this idea of... I don't think I call myself gay anymore. I think I would call myself queer. Mm-hmm. And I think that distinction feels important to me. And currently I call myself a queer man. But to be honest, I don't know. And I might play with pronouns in the future. Who knows? But through the podcast and through Travis, I think I've learned to embrace the feeling of transition and be like, it's actually okay not to know exactly where you are. Yeah, and that's fun. You're kind of always transitioning from one thing to another, perhaps, or at least it's always okay to be doing that. Yeah. I'll just back credit Hair, by the way, our um, loyal <laughs> listener and spreadsheet maker. Because Was that their question? Well, Hair's question was, is there a quality of your guests that you most admire or would most like to embody? And I've adapted that into this, who do you look up to, but among our guests question. But I think you've answered that. Yeah. <laughs> so something... I think I'd like to ask you is because, you know, I see you now you're on the cusp of 30, I suppose, in the way that I was recently on the cusp of 40. I actually turned 29 on Wednesday. No, Thursday. Thursday. It's quite cool that <laughs> oh, this God. is um, so close to it, but it would have been better if it was the 30th birthday. But nonetheless, this is quite a good kind of line in the sand <laughs> podcast for you and something you might look back on. So as somebody that is kind of a future, not a future version of you, but someone looking at you from the vantage point of quite a few more years, if I think about the time between 29 and 42, a hell of a lot happened to me to reconfigure the way I looked at myself. And mm. that process is already underway for you, as we've said. So, I mean, this is a similar question to one you've already answered, but and it's sort of a therapy question, but this is why I'm asking it because both of us have benefited from therapy. You've talked about how you might reimagine your I suppose your sexuality your identity the boxes you do or don't want to fit into on a more basic level and as someone who sort of loves you as well as is interrogating you what would you like life to look like if you imagine yourself as old as I am or even I don't know 10 years from now and you're about to turn 39 rather than 29 what would be the version of Michael Chakraverty that if you could look into the future and see it you'd be like yep that's it and there may not be a there probably isn't a definitive answer but what are some of the things you'd like I think finding it kind of it kind of is the opposite of what I've just said, <laughs> but finding a sort of stillness, mm. like both physically in terms of being in a place that I think right, I'm going to be settled here for a bit, but also kind of in who I feel like I am. Like while I love the idea of change and possibility and transition, 
I think it was probably quite exhausting to be to be doing it all the time. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, you'd like to come to a point where you say, right, I, I'm just going to have a sit down now without having big thoughts. Yeah, yeah, but like perhaps a kind of stillness in kind of who I am as a, at the core in terms of like a, I, I still don't know if I. I mean, I, there's things I know I believe in, but I think kind of a a stillness in kind of my core values, I suppose, in in terms of going right. This is who I am, and this is who I'm probably going to be for quite a long time. And while things about how I express that person might change and how I look might change who I am in myself is who I am in myself Hmm. so I think that I would like to have a cat Ah. um, two cats actually I'd like to call them Gary and Helen I think that'd be nice so so to summarize so far you'd like a (laughs) fully rounded and not so conditional sense of self and you'd like two cats called gary and helen <laughs> i think that's about it really <laughs> yeah, <fair enough. laughs> i'd like to have found somebody or people mm. perhaps that just make me feel safe and calm and who can make fun of me without it hurting <laughs> um, and I, I have many of those people but being nearer to them i think will will be amazing yes well you're on the verge of a move to the big city of course london it does feel like a we are recording this at a time in my life where things are kind of in a bit of flux it's quite interesting for sure yeah it's almost couldn't be better really and it'll be interesting to see how you um how you look back on this even well even in a couple of years when we're celebrating the big 100 i don't know (laughs) do we go back to me for 75 and back to you again for 100 and keep like keep measuring our lives against these uh we could do i suppose that'd be quite nice the answers might change. Well, that's the thing. They probably would, yeah. And we could discard the old conversations and just... Anyway, we'll see. We don't... It seems like hubris to start talking about 100 episodes, but we've got to 50 now and we've enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> Before we get anywhere near the um, the traditional closer, I suppose... I mean, this isn't something we'd normally say to someone, but because you and I have been in this for so long now, are there things... I think it's, it's as broad as, are there things about masculinity or about yourself or things that you'd like to say that we haven't covered yet? Are there subjects around who you are or what men are, anything that, that you've thought about and when you were preparing for this episode specifically thought oh i wonder if we'll touch on this or that um something that pinged straight into my mind was kind of body image i think nobody really yeah we haven't come onto that much i don't really know if i have anything particularly insightful to say but i think we have it's something we haven't covered as much as i would like to have covered on the podcast and i hope we cover it a bit more i'd agree we've even had guests where we know that they have a history of body image issues or thinking about it and we've sort of backed off maybe at times yeah and like i have i remember vividly being a younger kid and I was I was I was quite a big a big boy um <laughs> and I remember like as a as a routine bullying thing people would draw an s and like the the inside of the top curve of the s would be my face and the out curve of the bottom of the s would be my stomach wow and like even now I don't I don't go swimming really partly because it's near sand which as we've established is the stuff of the devil but yeah many of the world's best sites for swimming are automatically closed to you (laughs) yeah but it involves taking my top off which i don't like to do still Mm. now because i was bullied when i was younger and i've not let go of that i don't think many people have have let go of that and i think if i was to interrogate it a bit more i probably got some disordered eating going on and i probably still do Mm. but I don't know whether I have anything insightful. It's just to say that it's something that I I experience. And I think it is tied to the concept of masculinity in terms of thinking I need to look a certain way. And particularly in the queer community, for all of its celebration of individuality and diversity, there's a lot of a hot queer or gay man has a six pack and bulging shoulders and arms and probably hasn't eaten a steak bake in a while. Yeah, we have talked about this a bit, haven't we? How 
the queer community's celebration of diversity doesn't always extend beyond the physical stereotypes of who's hot. Yeah. And I found it really hard doing the marathon, actually, because I so I used to be a fitness instructor, I used to teach spin and spin classes and high intensity classes, which I loved. Uh, but then doing the marathon, I couldn't do any of those classes because, well, your time's taken up by doing four hour runs. You're just always running. You're always bloody running. Yeah. But then I was hungrier than ever because I was running so much. Mm. And so I put on weight doing the marathon and I became really depressed about it because in my mind, fit meant skinny. And actually, when you're marathon running, fit doesn't mean that. Fit means having enough energy stored so that you can run <laughs> and um, absolutely even i'm vulnerable to that i did a very intense month of running in melbourne because i just had more time and there were nicer places to do it and when i came back i noticed i'd gained weight over the month and i was sort of still like affronted and upset by it in ways which i'd never would have expected and so even i've got these associations with uh, like less weight as a correlation with fitness and i've been railing against that idea for years probably and also i don't think i care what size or weight i am I've never had to. And yet it's there, isn't it? It's there in everyone. Yeah, I re I vehemently remember the bullying in the comments and comments that weren't necessarily bullying, but just were that made me feel awful when I was younger. And I thought that exercise would fix it. And it doesn't hasn't necessarily really mm. done anything, anything of the sort. I mean, I also find it hard and I know that it's I know that it's wrong and it's, it's something that I'm trying to work on. But I find it really hard when I see people who I perceive as being thin or the ideal weight struggling to gain it and mm. from somebody who sits on the other side of that spectrum i find that really difficult to kind of grasp that somebody else is struggling with their own body image even though that's yeah. exactly what i'm doing and it's a strange dichotomy that i can't quite resolve in my mind but i am gonna start working with a personal trainer i think and i found somebody that i know personally who I think will be able to kind of help me manage things in a bit more of a constructive... So a very personal trainer. A very, indeed, a very personal trainer. But that's something I think I'd like us to explore a bit more in season three. Is there anything you'd like to explore more in season three? Body image is definitely up there because I've been conscious of not bringing it up with guests before now because of not knowing quite how to get... Or because the, the question feels intrusive, maybe. The therapy I've been doing talks quite a lot about the body and physicality and how it's impossible to divorce that from the brain uh, well and unhealthy mm. to divorce it from the brain because our bodies and our minds are you know they're all in there together in this sort of um team operation but i think we psychoanalyze and intellectualize a lot on the podcast but we often don't ask maybe more brutal questions i think it's partly because we don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable do like we kind of we just let people talk and then we go where they go yeah actually a more generic answer would be tom mayhew who we had last week asked me is there anything i should avoid is there anything i should focus on and um i said to him the podcast is best when we go to challenging or unexpected places so i think the broad answer to the question is i'd like us to take more risks in what we ask people and what we talk about it's not that we're consciously not doing that but i reckon and also you can't force a guest to go somewhere that i don't really mean that i don't think we should be sort of yeah. tougher interrogators but i do think that the logical next step would be to because we've talked about some of the same stuff, like relationship with your dad or uh, not fitting in. Maybe the podcast, we skewed quite a lot towards what was it like growing up? How did you think about it in your first 20 years? And we could be asking more, how do you feel now? And how could you feel better And now, I think? Yeah. yeah. I'd like to talk about, not like to, but I think it's important to talk about misogyny and male violence at some point as well. Yeah, I also agree with that. I think there are aspects of traditionally straight male behavior that we've not dwelt on as much as yeah 
we're still quite new to podcasting. I wonder if people enjoy sort of a, a five minute section where, where we publicly <laughs> anatomize what we're doing well and not. If you're listening, by all means, uh, let us know what you'd like the next evolution of mankind to be like. <laughs> what I would say, I think I've got an idea for a segue into the final question here. Oh, are you ready? I think so. Well, you said a moment ago that you find it difficult to understand other people struggling with their body image if it's not an identical type of struggle to yours. Mm. And that's even though you know how it feels and you experience it yourself. And that basically is a task of um, empathy, one of the most commonly used words in this final question. And I think that... Oh, that was a lovely segue. Thanks, Michael. I've been thinking about it for, I don't know, three to five minutes. I I think that one of the most satisfying things for me about Mankind is that it is basically a sort of empathy, an empathy engine. Most people come away from it having understood something about another person that they didn't previously. And I include myself in that and probably you. So uh, I'd like that to be one of the main things that mankind gives people. I love the phrase empathy engine. That should have been our title. It really, could have been, couldn't it? it? Quite mm. like mankind though. <laughs> and so I'm going to, I think we've established that one of the most precious qualities is empathy, is the understanding, the faculty of understanding other people, inhabiting their minds, and that our aim in this podcast so far has been, one of the aims has been to promote that. You can still have empathy, by the way, but what else? What else <laughs> would you like? We've phrased this question in different ways over the past 49 because it began as what should a man be and then it's become more like what should a person be because i think we've reevaluated what we think man even means yeah so the question is whatever you want it to be because you know what the question is but we're going to return to the builder bear <laughs> thing at least for this because it would be almost sacrilegious not to in this builder bear shop that we've sent 48 people plus me into in the past now that you're finally standing in it <laughs> what are you having <laughs> I think just to quickly on the change from man to person, I think if, yeah. you, if we were to listen back to ourselves a year ago, I think we were very focused on talking about men. And I think mm. it's interesting that over time we've sort of begun to shift. I think Travis was the first person to call into doubt the existence of the question. Yeah. But I think we both have kind of stopped thinking about it in such binary terms. So I think it's really interesting. For sure. You mentioned a few minutes ago something, I don't know what your phrase was, but ways to be alive. There are multiple ways to be alive. And perhaps that's mm. what the podcast is about now more than it's about masculinity. It's like what Tom Reed Wilson said about that buffet. You can select from the buffet of masculinity all the bits you want. So my qualities, I think the first one does link to empathy. I think I would say, I've been trying to find a way of saying it because in emotionally intelligent, I don't think covers it so everyone who said that was wrong <laughs> yeah we're now going to reveal what the correct answers were finally <laughs> i think i would say emotional curiosity mm. so kind of interrogating both yourself and others uh, like picking up on not interrogating others that sounds quite aggressive but like why am i feeling like that what what is that feeling and why am i feeling like that yeah. and then kind of doing that in other people as well going what what are they feeling and what about what i'm doing or what about the environment that they're in is making them feel yeah. that way and i think that is a kind of precursor to empathy i suppose is kind of yes emotional curiosity is a lovely phrase for that demand you should place on yourself yeah it's more active than just understanding other people's emotions it's wanting to and then acting on it going out there and finding that information very good yeah i love that thank you big tick and then the next one i can't find a a simple word for but perhaps like i'm a writer if i can help okay like the capacity for change oh that's interesting isn't it yeah it's not necessarily going like i want to change but it's the ability to or like the the space to so sort of flexibility or something sort of yeah mutability i almost said mutability mutability or pliability or some word like that maybe. or perhaps pliability yeah pliability is perhaps it um it makes me think of like a like a plastic with a, a set of pliers on it you know it kind of bends yes it's normally sort of putty or something you'd say was pliable rather than a human yeah, there we are. putty then 
putty, be putty in the sense of in your approach to other people kind of going, right, well, how I spoke to this person perhaps might not match how I need to speak to this person Mm. or in your outlook on the world. I think that's something that I've learned particularly over the last 50 episodes is to kind of be able to go, oh, what I thought isn't necessarily right or not even that, but just, oh, there's more ways of looking at this. There's more angles and what could I learn from it and, and, and grow from it, if that makes sense. So it does. yeah, I think a pliability of self is important to kind of mold yourself into the new world because what I believe 10 years ago doesn't fit the world I live in now. And I think we all need to be able to shift ourselves. And I love seeing, uh, my parents are so good at this. They pick up something, they'll hear something and they might go, oh, but you said this a while ago. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, but I've now changed my mind. And yeah. then I, I hear them interrogate themselves and their thoughts and they change. And I think that's an amazing quality in them and in so many other people. So I think I'd build that in. Very, very much agree. And the opposite of it, where people refuse to change, even when they're presented with new information over 20 or 30 years, is one of the worst things we see in, in humankind. Yeah, it's just, it's exhausting. And you just think, it's quite, I think it's quite sad. Yeah. Because the world that you live in will never be the same as it was a year ago. Precisely. So it's actually quite a sad existence to live in, where you're thinking, well, no, things must be as they were, when they never will be. I think of it every day. Yeah, exterior changes are quite literally inevitable, unavoidable. So you either change internally, you either make interior changes to match that, or you just resist it forever. And as you say, that is pretty sad. It's a bit miserable. And then the final one, I think I kind of already sort of mentioned, and I did initially think it was at odds with what I've just said about pliability, but I don't think it is. And that's peace. Oh. It's a sense of comfort in who you are. And that innately gives other people that same sense of comfort, but also the space for them to sort of, yeah, the space for them to to be who they need to be or say what they need to say and not feel like you need to interject or interrupt. And like, it's sort of like the opposite of competitive, mm. but not apathetic. Because I often think the opposite of competitive is someone who just doesn't care. And it's not that, because if you're coupling it with pliability and emotional curiosity, they do care. But what they have is a sense of, I don't need to talk now, or I'm okay here. And I'll meet you where you need to be. And I've called that peace because I think a lot of that comes from a sense of quietness. And it's something that my my granddad had. It's something that my dad has. It's this ability to just sit there quietly, absorbing what's happening around you. And it's not saying you don't care about it because you're sitting there quietly. Yeah. It's giving other people the room. And then you'll interject when you feel like you have something to say. And I often think the most important support to me are those who do it quietly Mm. without kind of feeling like they need bragging rights or they need praise for doing so. It's just this this peaceful sense of comfort that I think is really reassuring in anybody. I think that's great. And I don't think peace is a passive thing at all. You're right. Peace is an active, generous act. Generosity was the fourth on the list interestingly you almost made it but let's put it into peace yeah oh that's really good <laughs> no one's ever mentioned peace before but peace is what we're all trying to get to i suppose and that's quite a nice place to leave this well, we'll, we'll there's still a sort of a outro bit isn't there but happy 50th episode to you michael happy 50th <laughs> and uh, may there be many more it has been again i'm in the odd position of saying this has been great goodbye and then i'll i'll see you in a very short time well, we'll probably carry on talking once you've stopped yeah yeah but we can't let people think that happens that's uh... no we actually <laughs> (laughs) 
at the end of each episode, we stop talking and we don't communicate again until we're back until on the Until the following week, yeah. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And it's been an enormous pleasure to get to know you over the past couple of years, Michael. I'm looking forward to many more years of that. Here's to many more. Love you. You too, mate. And um, we can do the rest of this in our own time. So bye, everyone. Yeah, bye-bye. Well, that was me and you as well. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, hopefully you're still listening to us now, actually. If you, if you turned off halfway through, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and so am I. I take part of responsibility. <laughs> um, so that was our 50th episode and we are now going to be taking a summer break. We'll be back in the autumn for series three. So do send us in any of your suggested guests or any feedback and all just nice things about how you're getting on to mankindpodcast at gmail.com. I endorse that, actually. We like getting guest suggestions and we have taken at least a couple of them in the past. I think we sort of pride ourselves on having guests that you wouldn't necessarily hear in that many other podcasts, but that means it's hard for us to think who those people are. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, do suggest people or suggest yourselves we've not had a listener chat in this one have we like we did with fred oh i know but we have one in the in the pipeline don't we do we? have There's one lined somebody up somebody that we've currently got our eyes on so stay tuned for that in the autumn and actually we did get a lovely listener message in from hair who sent us in a spreadsheet as we requested last time of all of the what was it the top threes yeah it was all the top yeah, threes the, the top three builder bear answers essentially and they were empathy with 15 votes kindness with seven and humor with seven and reassuringly i said none of those so um maybe i was wrong or maybe all of those people were wrong there are no wrong answers <laughs> it makes you wonder what other spreadsheets and generally what other stuff we could ask for from the community so we'll think about that as well you think about what you want and we'll think about whether what we want from you uh, big news today as of monday june the 6th 2022 um as our mankind live dates are now on sale through the is it the fringe website you get them from yeah if you get to edfringe.com and stick mankind in you should be able to find it yeah uh, we'll also tweet about it and all sorts but yes you can now actually buy tickets to these we've hyped the idea of these live shows for some weeks and now it's a reality and we have at least booked one guest as well yeah should we re no we won't do a reveal yet we have one of the two guests up our sleeve and one still to book but they're going to be very fun those shows i think one sleeve full one sleeve empty um, the dates are 19th and 20th of august at assembly george square at five o'clock so just before your dinner you lucky things lovely time for a masculinity chat i've always thought <laughs> you can find us on our socials at mankind podcast and we'll be doing a lot more on patreon through the summer as well as releasing the live show audio so if you aren't able to make it to the edinburgh fringe you can hear us doing our lovely chats with our surprise guests on patreon so just join us over there at patreon.com forward stroke or forward slash is it a stroke or a slash i think slash is more common oh. Okay, forward slash Mankind Podcast. We have successfully done the admin, and it's time to wish everyone a very nice break, including ourselves. Yes, happy summer, and we'll see you for the next 50. Bye. <laughs> That's very tentative. Bye. It was a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>